It's episode seven of season three at the Texture Lounge. Guys, we've got a new theme tune. How dope is this? I want to credit Remedy for creating this original track for me. I will tag his Instagram in our posts as well as the podcast as well so you can check out his work. Guys, this is an incredible, incredible, deep, meaningful conversation with Dr. Cindy Duke. We're going to be talking about the world of fibroids, fertility, reproductive health from a black perspective, okay? So stay with it. There are a couple technology issues. Um, Dr. Cindy Duke's mic does come in and out a little bit, but stick with it. There's a lot of incredible information in here. Okay. So be patient with it. I'm so excited about this new theme tune. I'm going to play the whole thing through from beginning to end at the end of the episode so you can rock out with it. Honestly, in the last couple of weeks, I have been feeling very demotivated and my head hasn't been in full focus, if I'm honest, uh, with everything that's been happening in the world, uh, especially here in the US with regards to police brutality, racial injustices. So I had to take a little bit of a break, if I'm honest. I didn't publish any episodes for a few weeks, so um, I'm back. I'm committed and I'm ready to open up the lounge again. So guys, please, as we are talking about supporting black businesses, support the Texture Lounge, you know, review, rate, share with your sisters, your cousins, your mothers, your grandmothers. Let's open up this lounge to our community. Let's open up these conversations. Let's elevate them. Let's support melanated voices. Okay, guys, this is an episode I know you guys are going to get into. So as usual, grab your drink of choice, kick back, relax, take off your shoes. And let's get going. Are you in Nevada? I'm in Las Vegas, and I'm also an immigrant. I grew up in the Caribbean. I heard that you were Trini, right? Yes. We're from Tobago, but, you know, it's one country. Uh, so when were you last there? Uh, last year, a year ago, actually, in May of 2019. Um, usually, we always go home for the December holidays. Okay. We didn't do it last year, and now we're a little bit, you know, remorseful that we didn't because... We would have gone home uh, a month ago if it weren't for the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, gosh. This <laughs> pandemic has really put a spanner in the works for all of us in too many ways. Yeah. No, I think it's taught me, most importantly, not to put things off because you really, you know, we always say tomorrow's not promised, mm-hmm. but it's that in more ways than one, that you really can't plan for the future in any yeah. specific ways. You know, seize the moment when you have it. Yeah. Seize the moment while you have it. I love it. You're dropping gems and we haven't even started. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to, we'll get started now. I do want to just quick thing. You are coming in and out lightly. It's almost like a connection thing or a glitchy thing. I can still make out what you're saying, but um, just wanted to raise that in case there was any way to correct that. Let's keep it going. I think it'll be fine. I can make out what you're saying. So I think we're, we're pretty good. 
Okay, today joining me in the lounge is Dr. Cindy Duke. She is a virologist and a fertility physician. She's also the founder of Fertility Nevada out in Las Vegas. So welcome to the lounge, Dr. Duke. Hi, Tumi, and hello to everyone who's listening. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a no-brainer. I mean, I stumbled across your live on um, with on Instagram a couple of weeks ago um, with the Colorcom team, and I was like, I have to have her on. I have to have her in the lounge. She knows so much, and this is a conversation that we have to, you know, get used to talking about a bit more honestly. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. So listen, look, signature question. I always ask my guests this question about your name, our names, right? Like um, I think those of us who uh, come from, you know, who are immigrants or who have, you know, heritage somewhere outside of the U.S., um, we're given beautiful names, whether they are names that are westernized or names that aren't. I always love to understand a little bit more either the meaning behind our names or your name, if that's something you do know, or or where it came from or how it was inspired. Do you? Is there anything you can share about yours, Dr. Duke? Sure. So my name, I actually have three first names, like any good African. Caribbean family. My mom thought she'd just give me every girl name that she could think of. <laughs> so <laughs> my first name is Cindy and it's not shortened for anything. It is Cindy. And I guess in the late seventies, there were Cindy dolls uh-huh. um, were pretty popular. So I was named after the dolls that were popular at the time. And then my second name, Mariah is actually named after the village that I was born in. And mm. the third petal, the P, so I'm Cindy M.P., which is Cindy Moriah Petal Duke. And petal literally because my mom loved flowers and hoped I would grow up to like flowers, which in fact did happen. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, it did happen. I love flowers. Mm. I'm a good gardener. But that's really the origin story behind my name. I, I just love it, you know, because my, my little pet peeve is when, you know, people decide to shorten our names without asking permission to do so. You know, maybe it's a reason because, you know, they can't pronounce it or, you know, even if it's not a case of being able to pronounce a name, right? If they just feel like, I'm just going to call you something else just because, just because, but you don't know where it came from. You didn't ask me where it came from. You've already decided to you know, truncate it without understanding, you know, the background to my name. So thank you for sharing that, though. I appreciate that. That you say that, though, to me, because in the United States, everybody assumes that Cindy must be shortened for something. So oh. I actually get visit, which is I get a lot of messages and official correspondence addressed to Cynthia Duke. And I'm like, ah, that's not me. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. So I a lot of things as recently as Monday, I got an email from someone who I'm sure is well-meaning, but he, you know, he wrote, Dear Cynthia Duke. But that's not me. (laughs) I'm Cindy. Oh, that's so interesting. I never would have thought that Cindy would have been short for something else, but you know, we're all different. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, listen, I want to get to know a little bit more about you and why you decided to or how you fell in love with the world of fertility. How did that happen? You know, it was a roundabout way. So I knew I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a very little girl growing up in the Caribbean. But I 
presumed I would be a pathologist because the only black female doctor I ever knew growing up in Tobago in the Caribbean was a pathologist. Mm. So I very wanted to be like her. I went to college intending to be a pathologist and a doctor who does research. I entered medical school intending to become a pathologist. And then, you know, out of serendipity in my first year of medical school, we have these little rotations where they send you to the clinics to work with the doctors who are recently graduated, but not yet fully allowed to practice on their own, the residents. Got it. And supposed to work with an OBGYN resident, but she was pregnant. And on the very day that I was assigned to work with her, she had some sort of complication that led to her needing to be away from work. And so I was sent to the fertility clinic instead. (laughs) Pure serendipity. And I showed up to the fertility clinic. I have to be honest, I didn't really know the field of fertility medicine Mm -hmm. existed prior to that time. And I showed up to the clinic and, you know, credit to the doctors who were working that day. They were impressive. I worked with two doctors in particular who I would never forget. And, um, you know, I quickly realized, oh my goodness. So one, they were seeing people, they were seeing both men and women. They were helping people to grow their families. They were also doing research, which was something that I really wanted to do. Mm. But they were people who were surgeons. They worked with their hands. And funny enough, in that same time, I had come to discover from my anatomy class that I really liked talking to people. Hmm. And it was hard not to talk to my patients. <laughs> if I were. <laughs> and so it really piqued my interest. And I remember sharing that day with uh, one of the doctors at the clinic, Dr. Queenan, and he said, well, I'll let you know the path you're on is the perfect path for fertility specialists, which is I was doing both a medical degree and a doctorate of philosophy, MD, PhD. And so um, I engaged them just as I was starting work on my PhD, which was looking at um, vaccine design, virology, and particularly its role in women's health. And it just grew from there. No matter what other uh, rotations I went on, my heart kept going back to what about fertility? And so um, without knowing it, very early on in my medical school career, I quickly became a future fertility specialist. <laughs> wow, look at that. It was, that's, that's exactly what you call serendipity. Serendipity and the extreme opposite of what I intended to do, which was a, being a pathologist, working with the dead. And instead now here I am working on the <laughs> life. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. Okay, so I want to I want to talk about uterine fibroids. You know, it's something that is rampant amongst um, you know women of color um, around the world. You know, I was going to say African American, but it doesn't stop there, right? It's 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 across the board when it comes to black women. Um, so let's start with a few stats um, that I had researched. Okay, so according to the Black Women's Health Imperative, um, relative to white women, black women are three times more likely to have fibroids, develop them at younger ages, have more of them and bigger in size, and to have more severe symptoms. Also, 
the rate of hospital hospitalization for fibroids is approximately three times higher for black women than for white women. Okay, so that's one piece. And then also um, in 2013, the Journal of Women's Health published the results of a national survey on the burden of uterine fibroids on African-American women, stating that African-American women are 2.4 times more likely to undergo hysterectomy and have a or have a 6.8 fold increase of undergoing uterine sparing myomectomy, which is um, the removal of the fibroids. Wow. Say that again. While leaving the uterus in place. While yeah. leaving the uterus in place. Thank you for that clarification. So look, big stats there, big numbers there. It's it's clearly a thing that is affecting us as black women, um, you know, quite aggressively, I would say. Um, but first of all, before we dig into that, what is a fibroid? Like, give us the definition of a fibroid. And I know this might be TMI for some people, but I'm that person. If we were to take a fibroid and put it on a table, what would it look like? Yeah, I like that question. <laughs> so fibroid, first question thing is, I want everybody to think of the womb as a really big muscle. The uterus is one big muscle. And it's a muscle that actually regenerates very quickly. That's the whole purpose of how it keeps itself going. And it regenerates all parts of itself, not just the part that bleeds every month. And so those muscle cells can sometimes start growing out of control and forming tumors, which are benign. They're not cancers, but they're tumors. And so we have a special name for those tumors. We call them myomas or fibroids. So when you hear the word myoma, which means a muscle tumor, it's the same thing as a fibroid. To be specific, we call them leomyoma, suggesting that they're coming from the smooth muscle that makes up the uterine wall, the muscle of the uterus. Mm -hmm. So it's a tumor. And I think it's important to even use that word because for most of us, the word tumor has such a very negative connotation. Oh, God, yeah. That. You're making so me hear, sit up right now. <laughs> yeah. We hear tumor, we're like, oh my God, cancer. Yeah. And so it's important to use the word because I've had so many patients who out of the fear of the word benign tumor, they hide. They hear that they have a fibroid, they hear it's a benign tumor, and a protective mechanism is to just push it to the back of their minds, which means the fibroid then continues growing and doesn't get addressed until it's way later. Mm. And what do you want to know about fibroids early? Well, they will keep growing as long as your body is making estrogen. And estrogen, of course, is the female reproductive hormone that our ovaries make every month until we go into menopause. From the time you start puberty until you go into menopause, you make estrogen every month. And fibroids grow in response to estrogen. And so you can have fibroids that start growing from teens. You can have uh, young women, particularly young women of color, presenting as young as 1920 with symptoms of fibroids. And the most severe being heavy bleeding, Bleeding so heavily that you need to be admitted to the hospital to get blood transfusions. Mm. And that have that high rate of hospitalizations that you just quoted is it's often related to signs and symptoms connected to heavy bleeding and anemia. So signs of anemia, they can be vague for many women who have fibroids, um, 
who I diagnose, they're not coming in complaining of, oh, my periods are heavy or, oh, I feel like my womb is growing. They're coming in because they have this unexplained just fatigue. They're tired all the time. They're, they have what we call pica, meaning the craving to eat um, inorganic matter. So they're eating milk, they're eating ice, they're eating sand because your brain is trying to find iron, which is the thing that you lose a lot of when you bleed heavily. Mm -hmm. um, they're coming in complaining of other nondescript things, which when you really boil down and look at it, it's all related to fibroids. Now, fibroids can be located in different parts of the uterus. And so some women have fibroids and they have zero symptoms because it's not located in any place that can cause symptoms. Mm -hmm. But we tend to categorize symptoms in three different categories. So if you have, if you imagine the uterus as a balloon, right? If you imagine the inside of the balloon where the air is as the cavity where a baby grows, you can actually have a fibroid growing into that. And that is known as a submucosal fibroid. They can actually be small but dangerous in that because that part of the uterus bleeds every month, every time it bleeds, the fibroid, which has its own blood supply, would start hosing, so to speak. And so someone can lose so much blood that they get dizzy, they pass out, they, they're unable to even stand straight without fainting because they're so anemic. Mm -hmm. um, you can have fibroids growing in the wall of the balloon, and those are known as intramural fibroids. For a lot of women, those don't cause heavy bleeding, but they cause what we call bulk symptoms. So you may feel really What's that? Bold. Say that again. It's cool. uh, it cause bulk, B-U-L-K, just bulkiness. Okay. You know? big. And so they can cause symptoms that feel like, okay, I have to pee every so often. Maybe before your fibroids grew, you went to the bathroom once every four to five hours, but now you have a fibroid that maybe is growing and pushing against your bladder, which sits right in front of the womb. And so for someone like that, she needs to go to the bathroom almost every hour. She's that friend that you tease and you're like, oh my God, bathroom again? Because she's like, I don't know, I just have to pee all the time. Well, mm -hmm. it may be because the fibroid is pressing on her bladder, so it can't really fill. As soon as her bladder starts filling up with urine, she feels pressure. Yeah. She needs to uh, For others, it's growing so more on the outside of the balloon, but pushing on things like the rectum. So she may, she may be having constipation, just all of a sudden constipation, having to work really hard mm. to stool out. And then, of course, when it grows really big, the womb can really make someone look pregnant, right? A really large fibroid uterus can look like someone's pregnant. I've had patients who look six to seven months pregnant because of their fibroids being that large. Wait, let me just... Sorry, because you are coming, glitching in and out, but so I want to recap some of that. So you just mentioned that you have had some patients that have come in looking as, looking like they are six to seven months pregnant and they're not. It's a fibroid. The fibroids, yes. Wow. And some women grow a few fibroids. Others grow a lot. You know, in my own practice, I have taken out as many as 63 fibroids from one woman. At one time? one time. Um, you know, and you ask, what do they look like? Uh, yes. Before, a, before you go into that, is there anything we can do about your connection? Well, let's see. Because this what? is incredible info and I, I don't want to, 
Is it any better now? Maybe let's just give that a try, just for luck. <laughs> okay, Wi-Fi is on. Okay, let's let's give it a try. And let's pick up from, um, you were going to say, what a fibroid looks like. Yes. So in answer to the question of what does a fibroid look I want you to imagine a big ball of rubber bands. Have you ever seen rubber bands made into a ball? Yeah. Where you just have a big ball? That's what a fibroid looks like and feels like. It actually feels very rubbery, mm-hmm. very bouncy, and um, they can be as large as a grapefruit or even imagine a small bowling ball. I've taken out fibroids that large. Oh and God. they can be as small as a cherry. Mm. Interesting. Okay. I imagine that they would be spongy. They are. They're very bouncy. Just think of holding a rubber ball and the texture feels very much like the texture of a very compact ball of rubber bands. It feels rubbery. It has, it's not a smooth, smooth surface. Mm-hmm. It feels sort of these tiny lines or striations within okay. it. Mm-hmm. So why is this, uh, why, why are uterine fibroids so rampant among black women? What is it? Why? Why us? <laughs> we believe it's what we call multifactorial. So there's definitely a genetic component to it. Okay. And we now know it's not just one gene, but a number of genes that are, in terms of genetic information, that are increased in women of African heritage, meaning black women anywhere in the world, compared to their non-black counterparts. So that's one. But we know there are other things. So there are other factors, including environmental factors, um, foods that we eat, uh, fat content in our food. Um, We see people who, if they have diets that are less organic, meaning if you're eating, for example, meat that is exposed to antibiotics, which actually act as hormones in your body, they tend to have larger fibroids growing. We see that uh, if your diet is rich in soy, soy can have some what we call estrogenic activity. So that hormone that I just talked about, the female hormone, that can um, be related. There are some studies that show a link in vitamin D deficiency and fibroid growth. Now, that link is interesting because the question is whether it's a chicken or egg situation. Mm -hmm. We have nowadays that many black women, based on the way the vitamin D test was set up, will test low for vitamin D because there are proteins that carry that vitamin And actually, vitamin D is a hormone. It's a misnomer. It's not actually a vitamin. But it's a... Yeah. It's a hormone that's usually made under our skin in exposure to direct sunlight. And so we now know that there are different proteins in our blood that carries that vitamin around. And there are different amounts of that protein in black women compared to non-black women. Mm -hmm. So the question is whether or not it's a coincidental finding or is it truly that because they're low in vitamin D, they're making more fibroids? And that is still a big 
topic of research because we're not sure yet. Um, nine out of 10 black women have fibroids. Nine out of 10 black women do not have vitamin D deficiency. So it can't possibly be the only reason, even if it were part of the picture, it's not the only reason because nine out of 10 of us don't have vitamin D deficiency. Hmm. Super interesting. So we, this is great. Cause I was going to, I was going to, one of my questions was going to be, you know, is there a, is there truth behind the link between low vitamin D levels and, you know, in black women, because again, some data that I, that I have researched here tells us that African-Americans have uh, almost 25 times higher vitamin D deficiency. Um, and almost four times higher vitamin D insufficiency than, than Caucasians. So, I mean, clearly there's more research to be done and we're not yet too sure. So um, super gr- glad that you, you touched on that already. Um, I never heard vitamin D being spoken about as a hormone. So thank you for that education there. Um, I'm definitely... Women in Africa and the Caribbean, places that have a lot of sunlight, where these women don't tend to have low vitamin D, still have large fibroids. Mm. So it's not just that then, is it? Yeah, it's not. Okay. So what about this whole conversation around relaxer use? Have you heard that, you know, rumor about, um, you know, black women having used relaxers over a long period of time potentially could be a cause to, towards fibroids. Is, is there any validity in that that you know of? I've actually looked at the studies. So I've looked at the studies that looked at um, relaxers, looking at hair dyes, and also looking at specifically, there was a study uh, out of Johns Hopkins where I did my training. Um, they actually did a study looking at women who worked in hair salons. So looking to see if exposure to say, um, you know, the smoke or the environmental factors from blow drying and all these constant exposures for black hairstylists. Mm-hmm. And what they saw was a trend but not a confirmation of an association between relaxants, hair dyes, or any other chemicals within a hair care setting. So at the same time, I tell people, if you can avoid chemicals, you don't know what chemicals are going to do. It's much like those of us who do, say, mm, the Brazilian um, blowouts where they're using formaldehyde. Yeah. a known carcinogen that's been linked to a number of cancers in high doses. What I say to people is avoid your exposure altogether. Um, You know, the good news is a lot of relaxers, they've changed their ingredients over the years. They're not as harsh as they probably were 30, 40, 100 years. But at the same time, I don't think, I personally don't think from looking at all the research, that relaxes cause fibroids, but could they mimic a hormone in your body that will cause your fibroid mm. to grow a little potentially? So could your diet, so could a number of things. So why not limit as many of the environmental factors as you can control? Absolutely. Listen, so you talked about some of the, you know, telltale symptoms of um, someone who's suffering with fibroids, um, but you, you mainly kind of spoke about, you know, heavy bleeding, okay, leading yeah. to hospitalization. Is there, are there any other symptoms that are, you know, 
associated with uterine fibroids? Absolutely. So one is actually what we call dyspareunia or uncomfortable sex, right? So for those who are having penetration sex, you may notice over time that things feel fuller, nothing, things don't fit the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel like, you know, maybe the same partner, but suddenly it just feels like something really weird is happening in your gut because you feel this pressure and this deep pain. And that yeah. can come fibroids that are growing, especially growing down and pushing the uterus down into the pelvis. Mm-hmm. So that can happen. You can have gastrointestinal intestinal issues so as this fibroid and the uterus as it grows like i said imagine if someone was six months the size of a uterus this six months in pregnancy size well that's pushing up on your intestines it's pushing up on your stomach you may start having you know reflux acid reflux indigestion Mm -hmm. issues that you normally wouldn't have and it's not uncommon for patients like that who have their fibroids removed to comment on how much better they feel once the fibroids are taken out. Mm. Hmm. Okay. And and then again, you know, you touched on earlier on about, you know, what, what I don't know, I, I sit here and I, and I try to understand the reason why, but nothing really comes to mind for me. So I'm just curious on your point of view that it seems that the data is pointing to the fact that um, black women are waiting far too long before seeking treatment for fibroids. You know, they're waiting on average almost five years um, in comparison to our white female counterparts who are waiting on average three years. Just to, just to kind of show the difference there. What do you think it is? Well, you know, I actually think it's multifactorial again. So I think it's nice and tidy to put a paper together that says black women are waiting. But the truth is many black women, when they show up, are they're not taken seriously when they show up with their symptoms. Mm-hmm. If you ask asking them, how long ago have you been complaining of your bleeding, your fatigue, your weird periods, and no one sent them for an ultrasound? It is not uncommon for me, for example, to have my black patients express shock when I tell them, oh, you have some fibroids, and they'll say, well, that's impossible. I had an ultrasound last year, and nobody told me I had fibroids, which, of course, is not the case. They did have it there. If I pull the report, you'll see the fibroid written, but it wasn't mentioned to her. Why is that happening? Well, I think part of it is we need to just educate providers more, Uh but on top of that, is part of why I'm, you know, out here advocating this way because I want patients themselves to bring up the word to say, hey, do I have fibroids? Mm. For example, I've seen patients, black women who show up to hospitals with anemia, yeah. um, iron deficiency, and nobody's actually looked inside their womb cavity to see if they mm. have one of those fibroids that I talked about, the submucosal fibroid. Right. And it's the only way you can find it is you have to look inside the womb. A regular internal ultrasound won't see it. Someone has to do either a water ultrasound or a hysteroscopy, which is a camera through the vagina Mm -hmm. looking in the cavity. And I would say at this point, three out of five women who come to me and I diagnose these uh, were given a false reassurance without the actual test to look for it being done. I've had patients who were put on iron. They're getting weekly iron infusions. They've had colonoscopies to rule out bleeding in their gut, uh, endoscopy to rule out um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, to rule out ulcers in mm -hmm. their stomach. Nobody's actually looked in their womb. Nobody's actually asked them, how heavy are your periods? Yeah. And you know, heaviness of periods is also subjective. And that's something I'm also hoping to share with patients because like I said, fibroids are genetic. And so for the most part, if you have fibroids, your mom probably had fibroids, mm -hmm. your auntie had fibroids, your sisters have fibroids, which means they probably all have heavy periods. Mm -hmm. And so start having heavy periods yourself and you tell your family members, they'll say, oh, that's what it's like for our family, right? So you don't really rush to go ask your doctor, is this normal? Because you just assume, oh, this is how periods work yeah. in my family. <laughs> and so it's really important to let women know that if you are needing to change the super heavy pad more frequently than every four hours for more than one day, that's too often. If you're someone who has to wear a super overnight pad and a tampon and you're still changing every two hours before or else you have an accident, that's too heavy. If you're someone who's having to wear a bladder incontinence pad, meaning the pad that women wear when they're having urinary leakage, mm -hmm. but you're wearing your periods because it's so heavy, that's too heavy. Mm. You know, if you're someone who gets lightheaded during her periods, if you're someone who gets dizzy during her periods, it's too heavy. If you're someone being told you're iron deficient, your periods are too heavy. Mm. You're some blood with your period but if you're losing so much blood that your body cannot keep up with its iron stores you need someone to actually look inside the womb and address the situation and I know we'll talk about addressing the situation because for a lot of black women and this especially in the United States it's also based on unfortunately historical reference and engagement with the medical community which is for a lot of black communities, they felt very strongly that if they showed up to the doctor with any reproductive complaint, they were going to take their womb, right? Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a force, a fear of forced sterilization. Mm -hmm. And so I've talked to patients where I talk to them about myomectomy, which is the procedure where we remove the fibroids, but leave the womb in place. Yeah. And they'll say, you're the first person who's offered me a myomectomy. I've always been told I need a hysterectomy. And that I would put squarely on the doctors who did that because you should give the patient all her options. I think a number of disparities play a role there and a number of, of in, uninformed assumptions play a role there. I think we know that for a lot of physicians, they just somehow assume that every black woman's already had a boatload of kids, and so she has no desire for future fertility, which is the actual exact opposite mm -hmm. of what's really happening in our communities. And so, again, they offer a hysterectomy without ever asking her, what are your goals for future fertility? Do you plan to have more children if she does have kids? And then I've also had patients though, who've never had children, but nobody's ever asked them. They were just told, you need a hysterectomy. You know, it's, um, oh, wow, there's so many, so many, my, I'm, I could go off at different tangents right here. There's so many things that you brought up. First of all, some incredible, some incredible information shared here by Dr. Duke in terms of, you know, if you're feeling any of these, um, you know, severe symptoms during your period, like, you know, 
hopefully this is the flag if you haven't already for you to start to ask the right questions um, and not wait too long. Um, you know, even even personally, like I mentioned to you before, you know, there are there are, I, I have had people in my family, my immediate family, you know, my wider family network, um, you know, cousins of mine, um, friends of mine who have suffered from um, fibroids. Um, you know, some people have had you know myomectomies to have them removed, etc. And just knowing the the curious person that I am, I'm a very curious person in nature, right? Like I, I want to know the detail. I am going to ask the, the question that is maybe a little bit TMI <laughs> for most people because I just want to know. And I know that there are some people in the world that are like, you know, don't go there. Don't ask the question. Don't prod, don't prod, don't nudge. If it's not bothering, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Um, yeah. A couple, a couple of years for me, just because there's so many, you know, there were so many women around me who were suffering from this. I myself was like, I want to know, you know, yes. I want to know if I happen to have fibroids and perhaps, you know, I don't have the symptoms yet, or maybe I have really minor symptoms. And so I, I took it upon myself to, to go to my OBG. YN. And, you know, I asked for an ultrasound, you know, she did ask me the questions about, you know, are there, is, is there a particular reason why you're looking to do this now? And I said, look, well, I, I just want like my reproductive health is important to me. You know, I am, you know, at that time I was, I don't know, 35. Um, so, you know, I know that we're, I'm getting on in age. I want to make sure things are good. I don't want a surprise down the line. Um, so I did get an ultrasound and I did find out that I actually, I had, I had, and I'm going to say had, cause well, I'm, I'm sure I, I don't know if I still have them. I'm sure. I don't know. I haven't checked since then, but two fibroids that were about, uh, an inch in size and, but, but they were placed, I don't remember, but I remember that they where they are, um, the doctor had told me that there's, you know, there's no cause for concern. It's not in an area that is, um, you know, that is a concern. Yeah. So um, I haven't since gone back to check the size of them, um, you know, whether they've grown, whether they've shrunk, whether they're still there, whether I haven't, um, probably mostly because I've had a lot of life stuff happen in between, you know, moving from New York to, to California, getting married, all of that. So I do think that I, I probably will go in just to, you know, just to check up on things. And I didn't, I personally, I don't think it's a bad thing to know so that you can prevent. Um, I know when I shared this with my mother, who I'm sure will be listening to this episode. Uh, and I told her that I happened to just go into a doctor and ask for an ultrasound to, to see if I had one. And she was like, why? Why did you do that? You, you had no reason to go in and ask for it. You're fine. You have no problems. Why are you prodding? Why are you? But I just want to know. I don't want any surprises. I think, you know, honestly, and I get where your mom's fair because, you know, again, growing up in the Caribbean, there was this constant belief that you were always healthy until the doctor gave you something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. So and so, cousin so and so was fine until the doctor told him he had cancer. Yes. <laughs> well, that works. So I can see why your mom is worried. But no, I honestly think that as a black woman, uh, somewhere around age 30, if not before, meaning if you have no symptoms, an ultrasound should be done at around 30 anyway to look at your ovaries, to see how many potential egg houses you have, mm. look 
your uterus. Um, because the truth is not everyone with fibroids knows they're having fibroid-related symptoms. Mm -hmm. We know that for those of us who are a little bit more on the fluffy side, we may not notice that our uterus is growing. Yeah. You know, I've had patients who are a little bit more on the heavy side, and it's not until she's having an examination with me, and I say, you know, your uterus is measuring almost 20 weeks, you know, mm. and she, uh, what does that mean? And you start asking her questions, and then she'll say, yeah, you know, sex has been more difficult of late, but I thought maybe it was just, you know, we were out of practice, or, right. you know, because we would excuse things away, wouldn't we? Yeah. We would excuse away. And for those of us who are in heterosexual relationships, nothing makes our partner feel better. Like, oh, you feel big. You know, he's like, whoa. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You might actually be having your uterus is growing. The fibroids are growing. And that's why things are now uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So it's being more in tune with your body. But I do recommend at around 30, having that full annual, that's not just your pap smear, which is the screen for cervical cancer, but also a full pelvic examination where they assess the size of your uterus. If it feels enlarged, you should have an ultrasound. Um, yes, the truth is not everyone who has fibroids will have symptoms or need to remove them. I agree with that. But for many people, they don't realize they're having symptoms until someone actually investigates. Okay, Dr. Duke, before we move on to our first caller who has a question for you, are there any myths that you wish to debunk about fibroids and its impact on fertility? Well, I think the first, though, is that there are a lot of people out there who seem to think fibroids and fertility don't go together, and that's not true. There are actually a couple subsets of infertility that have direct relations to certain fibroids. So, for example, there are certain women who keep getting pregnant but having miscarriages or delivery later in pregnancy but still too early for the baby to survive. And those can be related to fibroids, particularly fibroids that are growing within the cavity, the fibroid in the balloon, basically. Because here's the thing about fibroids. They grow with pregnancy, and that's because pregnancy has so much estrogen, that female hormone that we talked about. And so if there's a fibroid sitting in the cavity, the place where a baby is supposed to grow, as your baby's growing, so is the fibroid. And so it starts competing with mm. the baby. And so it can lead to miscarriage, it can lead to stillbirth, it can lead to premature delivery. And so in those women in particular, many times they do need to have the fibroid that's in the cavity, at least, not necessarily every single fibroid, but the one in the cavity needs to be removed so she can successfully carry a baby to viability. Um, but the second is related, but not Quite. So the second is the belief that if you have fibroids and are doing a myomectomy, every single fibroid has to be removed. And that's where people can run into trouble and end up having a hysterectomy, even when the intention was just a myomectomy, removal of the fibroid. So it's important to talk about your goals when you're talking to your surgeon about your fibroid removal. Maybe, you know, explain to them that you really want to keep your uterus and you are okay with the idea of one or two fibroids staying back if they're somehow going to compromise your surgery or compromise your risk of keeping your uterus. It's important to explain that to your doctor, but also to set expectations. Um, sometimes fibroid removal surgery needs to happen in two steps, not just one. 
Because again, the attempt to be heroic with removing every single fibroid is when you might run into trouble and not get the goal you wanted, which was to preserve your uterus and preserve your fertility. Mm. Okay. And just clarify the difference. So I'm going to try here. So the difference between a hysterectomy and a myomectomy. So the myomectomy is the removal of the fibroids while keeping the uterus in place. Correct. And the hysterectomy is the removal of the uterus. The whole uterus. Okay. Got it. If your hysterectomy happens, then you can no longer carry a pregnancy. If you have a hysterectomy, could you still have a biological child if you're young enough? Yes, but you wouldn't be able to carry that child. Um, someone would have to take the eggs from your ovary, create a baby, and a surrogate carry it for you. Uh-huh. Or if you have a myomectomy, which is literally excising the myoma, which, like I said, is the fancy medical word for fibroid, is you remove the fibroids but keep the womb, the rest of the womb muscle in place. Um, and like I said, some women can have a lot. Like I said, I, I removed 63 from one patient. Wow. Um, it's a lot, but sometimes even removing 63 can be dangerous depending on where the fibroids are located. So like in the one I took out 63, I think we left like three in there because they were next to blood vessels. They were next to vital things, which I knew if we touch those, we could now compromise her womb. And so it's important to have that conversation with your doctor. But more importantly, if you've had a myomectomy, meaning surgery that's removed your fibroids, it's important to know that fibroids, new ones, can grow in. And so if you've had your fibroids taken out, but you're not planning to get pregnant right away, you should maybe talk about going on birth control or something that keeps your estrogen low so that new ones don't grow very fast. Well, perfect timing because the first question is pretty much about the topic of returning fibroids. So I'm going to play the first question to you and um, we'll come back with your response. Hi, Dr. Duke. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for answering this question in advance. Um, So I am a black 39-year-old woman, um, no kids. Um, I often struggle with fibroids. Um, They tend to grow rather large. I have actually had uh, a myomectomy about five years ago. Um, I've struggled with fibroids probably since my mid-20s all the way through my late 30s. Um, Like I said, I've had surgery to remove them. Um, and I was recently told by my gynecologist that, um, that the fibroids are growing back. Um, so my thought is, or my question is outside of surgery, um, what should we know or what can we do differently to slow down or eliminate the growth of fibroids? I found that there's very little information out there around the treatment of fibroids, um, outside of surgery or medication, um, both options I'm not really um, that uh, excited about. So I was wondering if there are any dietary changes. Um, I'm a pretty active person. I exercise regularly. I have a pretty healthy diet. Um, What else should I be doing or thinking about in the treatment of fibroids? Thanks again. Okay. Yes. Well, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. So she's a 39-year-old, never pregnant, history of fibroids, actually had them removed five years ago, and now she's told they're back. And that's actually pretty common. So the thing I want everyone to hear right now is, it's not that the fibroids are back in that they've regrown. These are new ones. But here's the startling statistic. We know 
that 65% of women who have fibroids removed will have new ones within five years. Mm. So she fits the bill very much to the T. Um, big things that you can do to help slow the growth of fibroids would be, again, like I was just talking about, limiting the thing that actually causes fibroids to grow. Fibroids feed on estrogen. And so as long as your cycles are regular and just uncurbed, you're going to have them grow over time. But also, yes, there are foods that we eat that are what we call estrogenic. Uh, there are things in different types of foods that we eat that behave like hormones within our body. So, yeah, I, I always start with telling patients to look at an anti-inflammatory diet. So okay. that would be watch dairy and your red meat. Um, so limiting your dairy intake is one that we recommend. Has there been any large study looking at the direct impact of dairy and fibroids? No, mm -hmm. but I'll tell you what we do know. We know that most of our dairy comes from animals that, that had to be fed hormones to keep producing milk. Mm -hmm. And so indirectly, you end up with some of that. We know that a lot of our food that we eat in terms of meat um, comes from animals that were fed antibiotics that act like hormones in the human body. And so that can have an impact as well. So I start off by telling people, limit your red meat intake um, to, you know, once a week if you can, or maybe only on special occasions. Limiting your dairy intake. Um, dairy in general, in women of color, particularly black women, 50% of us can't process dairy very well anyway, mm. but it further exacerbate bloating, et cetera, and really make it hard for you to tell whether your bloating is from the uterus or from your gut uh, reacting to lactose. So limiting your dairy. But other things would be, you know, looking at the soy foods that you eat. If you're going to eat soy, we recommend eating fermented soy, meaning the estrogen type compounds have been broken down through the fermented process. Okay. So, you know, in your soy intake, limiting that. There's studies, not strong enough in data, but there's some studies that suggest green tea might have a positive effect in shrinking fibroids somewhat, and definitely in inhibiting growth, keeping them from growing. So we've talked about maybe if you're going to have tea, have green tea, um, but again, you know, watching where that comes from. So those would be some of the dietary things that you can control. Um, but many times, I'll be honest, those things would slow the growth, but they don't prevent the mm. growth of your fibroids. And so if you truly are looking to, well, I'll tell you this, the honest truth I tell my patients, but of course, most of the patients I see these days are fertility patients. I tell them, if we're removing your fibroids, we need to work on getting pregnant as soon as possible possible. Typically, that's three months after your fibroid removal surgery, after we've made sure the womb is healed mm -hmm. well enough to hold a baby. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the goal. If you're going to remove your fibroids, you need to have an active plan for childbearing or for keeping things small, which is where a birth control pill comes in. Mm -hmm. If you're not actively trying, we recommend going on a progesterone-only pill. So that's one that has limited 
uh, hormonal effects on your body, limited uh, mood changes or anything like that, but it certainly keeps your fibroids small. And I would recommend that if you're someone doing a myomectomy, meaning a fibroid removal surgery, but you're also thinking, I may not want to be pregnant for three, four, five, six years. Um, and that's because, like I said, two out of every three women who have fibroids removed will find themselves with new problematic fibroids within five years of that surgery. Mm. Got it. Super clear. So if you are planning to have a child within five years of your myomectomy, um, best be ready or have a plan in place to, to start you know, if you're, if you're looking to have kids, it's best to start as soon as you're physically able to post-surgery before the fibroids potentially return. That's what it sounds like, right? Absolutely. If they come back, again, it's better to have the surgery to address them before they get too large a second time around. And so specific to the caller, I would say really talk to your doctor and talk about your goals at 39, never pregnant, I would imagine if you have any desires to be pregnant, you're going to be acting on it within the next two to three years, if not sooner. And so at this point, I would say you really need a plan to address the fibroids, but also to talk about just your eggs and pregnancy if your goal is a biological child. Okay, so listen... The fact is, in this day and age, we are seeing that women of color are actually starting businesses at a faster rate than anyone else. Super, super exciting. Love it. We are business owners. We're making our money. We are not letting anything stop us in our way. And we're very career focused now. Now then, you know, you know, our, our maybe our mothers or our grandmothers were, you know, um, back in time. And what that event what, is, what that essentially means, um, not for everybody, but for, I'd say, most cases is that, you know, women are marrying later and they're having children later. Do you, can you share any top tips to help us put ourselves in a better health position to conceive successfully for those out there who are planning to have children, say, at the age of 37 plus? First thing is to really emphasize to every woman listening here that we don't make new eggs. We're born with all the eggs we'll ever have, and then those eggs age with us. And I say that as someone who is within the same age group that you're referring to, to me. And I have to say that short of being within the field, it's not a conversation that women of color really have. We don't hear it from our parents. We don't hear it from our teachers. We're not hearing it from our friends. We're not hearing it in our places of worship. Whereas a lot of other cultures, a lot of other ethnic groups, this is something that they discuss early on. So I would say even though we are currently the most highly educated and accomplished group, mm. we're also a group most likely to get to age 40 and never having become a parent, right? Because we're very career focused and nobody's ever really explained to us that our eggs going away. You know, matter yeah. of fact, us we're raised to believe black doesn't crack. And it's nice. We it, mm -hmm. it, it emboldens us. You look in the mirror and you blow yourself a kiss because you're like, yeah. <laughs> right? But the eggs are not doing that. The eggs aren't doing that. And it's not enough to say, oh, my grandmother had a child in her 40s or my, aunt, my mom had me when she was 41. 
that doesn't necessarily mean you will have the same outcome. Oh my gosh, can I just stop you right there? (laughs) (laughs) I was sitting here thinking to myself, wait till I tell you that my grandmother had my mother when she was 50. (laughs) And I've been sitting here thinking, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it's not because... Things can change, and a couple things to know, right? Remember, I was just talking about all those dietary and environmental things yeah. out there that are now affecting fibroids. They're yeah. also affecting our egg quality and our egg count. There are also things that are involved in like the containers we use to mm. keep our food. Certain plastics where things can leach into our food that then kill our eggs. Um, there's oh, so God. many things in modern day society, environmental factors, and I'm not saying this to make anyone out there paranoid. I, that's not my goal here. But I do want people to say, you know what, even if I'm planning to meet the right person, or maybe you're planning to be a single parent by choice, which I encourage as well, you still should, at age 30, ask for a test to look at your egg number, to have a sense of where you are. But don't be just consoled by that. Because here's the thing. So like I said, we're all born with the eggs we're going to have for the rest of our lives. When we're born, we're born with somewhere between one to two million eggs. By the time we hit puberty, to me, we're down to 400,000 eggs. By the time we're age 30... Yeah, this is the part that's going to really blow your mind. By the time we're 30 years old, 70% of the eggs we were born with are gone. Here's the real kicker. By the time we're 40, we're left with only 3% of the eggs we were born with, which means that between age 30 and age 40, 27% of the eggs we were born with are gone. And so it's really a critical decade, a decade that... We haven't done a very good job of talking to each other about. Mm -hmm. We certainly also haven't done a good job at explaining what happens to the eggs that are remaining. Mm -hmm. So, sure, you have 3% of the eggs you were born with when you're 40, but they're also 40-year-old eggs because your eggs actually were formed four months before you were born. Your eggs are actually older than you are. Older than us. They're older than you are. And so, you know, some mornings you wake up and you need a little extra oomph. The eggs are the same thing. And so what I say to patients is strongly consider egg freezing as your backup plan. You may not do it, but you should have it as your backup plan. And the younger you are when you freeze, the better your odds. So, for example, if someone's 25 and freezes eggs... For every five eggs that she freezes, she's going to have at least one baby born from that. Mm -hmm. For someone who's 40, she's going to need to freeze somewhere between 18 to 25 eggs to have a shot at one baby. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's really, really, yet the other thing is, so she needs 18 to 25 eggs to freeze, but she may not have that many to come out of her own. Exactly. Exactly. So you're really playing a game of diminishing returns. And so what I say to patients is, why not freeze the best version of yourself, which is what egg freezing is? You are literally stopping the clock on the eggs aging and putting the best version of yourself that you will have for the future going forward. So even if you're 51, you can still use your egg that you froze at 30, 31. Mm, I see. It's almost like... um... Going back in the, you know, what, what do they call it? The time machine 
you know, and actually being able to utilize the eggs that you froze when you were younger. Exactly. Okay. And women of color, that's not being discussed. You know, I have children now who are not parents of color. They come into my clinic and they'll say, my daughter is graduating college. She's graduating grad school. I want to freeze her eggs. I want to give her an egg freeze as her graduation present. Wow. Egg freezing as a graduation present. That is what you call forward thinking. Forward thinking, gifting it, but it's because they want to guarantee that they can keep the family line going. How many black families is that happening? To? No, no, I don't think I've ever had anyone think like that. As a matter of fact, that conversation that's happening is the opposite. We're being told, don't embarrass your family. Don't get pregnant. We hear all the scary stories. And so... We listen, and black women have been listening. Black women do not have the highest teen pregnancy rates. They don't have the highest single parent rates, yet the media produces stories that look like that. Mm -hmm. So we all believe it. We've all internalized it. And then it leaves it up to someone like me to break it to my 41-year-old black patient that, unfortunately, her numbers aren't matching up. Her egg numbers are low. Or we do IVF and we get 17 eggs, but they're all abnormal. And it's shocking and heartbreaking when we could have addressed it five years ago, seven years ago. All right. So listen, let's, 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 let's hear from our next listener um, who has sent in a question on this topic. Hi, Dr. Duke. Thank you for addressing our questions today. I had a friend recently mention they were looking to undergo the process of freezing their eggs. And my first thought, sadly, was if I participate in doing that, am I giving up on hopes of meeting someone and uh, having children in the more traditional way? What do you usually say to your uh, patients when they have concerns like that? Additionally, is there an ideal age range where you should be undergoing freezing your eggs? Uh, just considering that for some of us, we've been on the pill for many, many years. And does that impact our ability to participate in this process successfully with a successful outcome? Thanks. I love those questions. So to answer the first one, um, no. So freezing your eggs doesn't mean you have to use the frozen eggs. It's really that insurance for in case you meet the person, you guys have been trying and you're trying and you're not conceiving, then you can go to the frozen eggs that you have frozen. So for many of my patients who freeze their eggs, they still, because most of them, they're single. Um, so we do have some patients who are in relationships. Some of them are married and they still prefer to freeze eggs because they're not ready to start their family. But the majority of patients who freeze their eggs are single. And the Egg freezing is really an insurance plan for the future. Should you maybe not meet the right person until much later when you're out of natural eggs in your ovary, you can still go back to what's in the freezer, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, it's more so you have options maybe to grow your family. Maybe you meet, you know, assuming this is someone in, a, in um, a heterosexual relationship, maybe you meet Mr. Wright at 43 and you successfully conceive the old-fashioned way, mm -hmm. so to speak. But then you have that baby, and now you're 45, and you no longer have eggs in your ovary, but you want siblings. Mm -hmm. Well, now use your frozen eggs to create the siblings. 
Uh, yeah, I love this conversation, um, honestly, because, you know, it's a taboo. We don't talk about it. And I know that there are, you know, parents and mothers that might be listening to this that are like, have always been like, no, don't go down this road of freezing eggs. You know, I don't know anything about this. This is not something that we do culturally. Um, this is not doing things the way God wants them to be done. Like, what do you have? I mean, without even asking you what you have to say about it, because I think you've already said it, but to summarize, it's it's the insurance policy, you know? It's not flying in God's face. It's actually technology that was created by God-fearing people to allow you to fulfill the very thing that if you're a Christian, Sarah in the Bible struggled with, you know, well, now we have a way to give you the Sarah story with your own egg. Mm. Um, many clinics, mine included, you can get pregnant until age 50 something, even after menopause, as long as we have eggs for you. Um, if you don't have your own eggs, of course, you can borrow eggs from a younger woman that's known as donor egg. But again, we have the technology. It is now standard of care. It's not an experimental procedure. It's not an experimental process. It's one that has been proven to have success. And you also may not find that you need it. It's mm. just a saving account. It's your rainy day account for your ovaries. Okay. We have another question from a listener, and it's really about, we're going to move now into, I mean, we're in this world already, the world of fertility tests and what we need to do to make sure that we are healthy. Um, but yeah, take a listen at, or take a listen to question number three. I am 38 and I'm just starting the process of getting pregnant. I am curious, are there things that I can do to help boost my fertility? I am someone who's in pretty good health overall and have not had any issues when it comes to my reproductive health in the past. So I have very regular periods. I don't have any fibroids. And overall, my health and well-being is pretty good. But I do know that trying to get pregnant after 35 can be a challenge. And I'd like to find out if there are ways that I can boost my fertility to support me in this process. Great question. It is. Um, and there are things you can do to boost um, your fertility. So certainly many of the things we already talked about, like the dietary changes and watching what you're eating, they also apply to someone who's trying to get pregnant. Okay. So I would encourage all of those activities, which is, you know, cutting back on red meat, watching your dairy intake, watching um, how you store your food, so avoiding plastics as much as possible, using glass, mm -hmm. um, and um, in terms of vitamins, I recommend a prenatal vitamin if you can. They're now even gummies and chewable prenatal vitamins. Um, for women over 35, like I said, we're born with all of our eggs, so they're aging with us and a little bit older than us. So it helps to boost the energy in your eggs. So there's one supplement known as coenzyme Q10, CoQ10. Mm -hmm. And we recommend taking that daily, 400 milligrams once a day to boost egg energy so that when the egg meets a sperm, it's more likely to say, okay, let's go. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we recommend that. And of course, a folate supplement. So folate is one of the most critical vitamins that your baby needs. 
sorry, hold on, I didn't mute this. Um, it's one of the most critical vitamins that your baby needs in the first seven to 10 weeks of pregnancy. And mind you, many women don't even know they're pregnant until six to eight weeks in. And so it's important once you start trying or if you think you could get pregnant, maybe you're not using protection, you're not really trying to get pregnant, but you're not using protection. You should be on a folate supplement um, so that your baby can have enough folate to build its brain, build its spinal cord, because that is the function of folate. Um, and we know now that folate is related to not just things like spina bifida, but also autism and other um, learning disorders. Mm -hmm. Really important to start that early. Um, other things that I recommend, though, is if she's not using one already, she should use a period tracker, an ovulation kit to really get a sense of when she's ovulating, and maybe even a kit that actually tests her urine seven to ten days after ovulation to confirm that she did, in fact, um, ovulate, which is a test looking at progesterone. Good tip. Where could she get one of those from? Um, so the ovulation predictor kits, there are multiple brands out there, and those are the ones where you test your urine two to four days before ovulation to get a sense of your fertile window. The tests to look at progesterone, there's one called Proof, P is in Paul, R-O-O-V, and you can buy it at Target. It's sold at Target. Okay. It's FDA. Um, but that's one you can do, and that's more to confirm. It's similar to the blood test that we do in the office. If your doctor were helping you, they would check your progesterone level 10 days after ovulation to see if you did, in fact, ovulate. This is based on the same principle, mm -hmm. but you're doing it at home, so before you start seeing the doctor. Um, and those are things I would do, but here's the other thing, right? A lot of us put the burden of childbearing on ourselves, and we don't look at our partners. Yes. I really, really want to emphasize that. <laughs> so true. 50% of the time, if there is something going on that's causing decrease in chances of getting pregnant, it involves the male partner. So just like you're taking all these steps for yourselves, you should be looking at your partner. For example, if you're 37 and your partner is also 37, 38, 39, and he's never, ever fathered a pregnancy... Sure, he could have been very careful all this time. But if he's really never had a positive pregnancy, I don't mean a child. It could have ended in a termination. But mm -hmm. if he tells you never, nobody's ever called me and said they were pregnant, then unless he's truly this person that really was never having relations before you, don't use hubris here. Get him checked out. He should have a semen analysis done. It's a simple test, but it's a meaningful test. So... Remember I said women were born with all the eggs we don't make anymore? Mm -hmm. Guys are the opposite. Guys make sperm their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And so if he has a low sperm count, there are things he can do to boost his counts and make more sperm. So you really want to get him checked out because doing something to boost his numbers might actually boost your overall chance as a couple of getting pregnant without my help. So, so what are some of those things? Just top line real quick. What are some of those things that men can do to help boost their sperm count? Well, one thing is, for example, the testicles were designed to be outside of the body, right? Physiologically, they were designed to hang outside of the body so that the testicles can be three to four degrees Celsius cooler 
than the rest of the body. And so if he's wearing briefs, meaning tight jockey shorts and things like that, that pushes the testicles back up against his it warms up. Mm-hmm. And actually, they don't make sperm very well, and they don't make very good-looking sperm if they're really pushed up against the body and heated up like that. So we recommend wearing boxers instead of briefs, maybe going commando when at home. Right. You've probably seen the movies where the guy's sitting on the cool packet of peas or something <laughs> while he's watching it's the same principle. Um, avoiding hot tubs and saunas, you know, sitting in hot tubs and saunas, you're literally boiling them, so to speak. Um, and so if you're actively trying, doing things like that can really make a meaningful difference in the sperm quality um, okay. in the short term. Um, keep in mind, it takes 70 days, seven zero days to make new sperm. So if you know your partner is making these changes, it may take up to two to three months to see the impact of those changes. Uh, I see. So it's, it's not a short-term fix, but if he, he changes those things, I don't want you giving up after a month because it takes 70 days to actually see the sperm. That's the result of the interventions you're making. Making sure he's on a vitamin. If he has underlying diseases like diabetes, etc., if they're not well-controlled, they directly impact sperm quality and counts. And so you really want to get his blood sugars under control. His, he needs to see his doctor, get on the right medicines. Um, if his blood pressure is not well controlled, getting on the right medicine. If he has some erectile dysfunction, that needs to be addressed. But lastly to me, and most importantly, whatever he does, he should not take testosterone. Testosterone is essentially male birth control. So if you and your partner are trying and you're doing everything, you're like, I don't know what's wrong. And he's like, yeah, I feel strong. I feel like stamina. And he's taking testosterone. Well, actually, although he feels great, although he feels really like high libido, his testicles are going to stop working. They're not making sperm. And I can't tell you how many people I have to just tell them, stop testosterone so that they can actually start making sperm again and get their partners pregnant. Oh, these are great tips. So first of all, stop boiling the sperm. Keep the testicles away from the body. That's the first one. And secondly, secondly, oh, I've just lost my train of thought now. Uh, Watch your diet. Um, Don't take testosterone. Testosterone. Stay away from testosterone. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You got me back on track there. Okay. Look, so in your opinion, Dr. Duke, when is the opportune time, um, at which point should we be proactive about scheduling that first appointment with a fertility physician? Like, is it when you're ready to start having kids? Is it earlier than that? What are your thoughts? Well, I'll be honest, for most people, it's when they're ready. Um, For some people, I wish I saw them before, but let me break it down first for the group that's ready. So if you are under age 35 and you and your partner have been trying, meaning unprotected, regular intercourse every other day for a year, and you haven't gotten pregnant, that is the time to see a fertility specialist. That, by definition, is is infertility. If you've been having regular, unprotected intercourse for 12 months under the age of 35, the woman being the age under the age 35, that is considered infertility. If you're 35 and older, having regular unprotected intercourse for six months, that is infertility by definition, textbook. 
Now, so those are the two main ones. But also, if you're someone who's just never had a regular period, you do not need to wait 12 months or six months based on your age. You need to see the doctor right away because it means your ovaries aren't doing what they're supposed to do. You need help. That time limit doesn't matter there. If you're someone where you know your partner has historically low sperm count or maybe he had a vasectomy, you should see the doctor sooner. So those are the ones mm -hmm. who are trying. Now, there's one group of women who very rarely comes to see the fertility specialist, although they need to. And these are the women who keep getting pregnant, meaning they get pregnant on their own, but the problem is they don't stay pregnant. And so these are what we call recurrent miscarriage. And most people out there believe, if I can get pregnant, I'm not infertile. And that's not true. Recurrent miscarriage is part of the spectrum of infertility. And mm -hmm. we have some of the best doctors who are able to help you overcome that and get pregnant and stay pregnant to deliver a life-born baby. So those are the groups I really think need to know. But here's the other group, right? The other group is the woman who's single, or maybe she's career-focused, or she's traveling the world, or, you know, she's married, but they've decided this is not the time mm -hmm. to grow our family right now. This is a person who may want to at least have a consultation with a fertility specialist to find out what they can do to preserve their future chances at building their family. And it may be something that involves egg freezing or what we call embryo banking, or it may just be a simple health checkup. I want to know how many eggs I have, and you want to know if you have fibroids, and that's fine. Okay, so look, I want to... I wanna just go back a little bit because we were talking about egg quality and you know number of you know we all women are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have um and they you know we lose them over time so at which how do we find out how many eggs we have left like is there a specific test we have to ask for is it a simple ultrasound what does that look like recommend a combination study which is a blood draw to look at certain hormones and an ultrasound typically done somewhere around the second or third day of your period to see what's called your antral follicle count, which literally just means looking at how many egg houses are activated in your ovary at the beginning of that cycle. So between that ultrasound and the blood work, we're usually able to give you a range of the eggs that you have. Unfortunately, we don't have any test that can give you a finite number. Like, there's no test where I can come back and say, oh, to me, you have a thousand eggs, or yeah. you have 10 eggs, or you have a million. But what I can tell you is how many eggs you have compared to other women your age. Mm. And so, for example, if I do a hormone called AMH, or anti-Mullerian hormone, I can get a sense for, based on your age group, whether or not your egg... That, that level is the average number for your age group? Are you above average or are you below average? And that also informs us a little bit about the urgency of your situation. Right. And so um, that's where that test comes in. It's simple. Um, for a lot of us, there are even now what they call send out tests. You can call up a company, they send you a kit to your house, you prick your finger, a little bit of blood comes out and then you send it back to them and they will send you a report. Um, one of those companies is called Modern Fertility, and I don't get paid for any of these things. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Um, 
So what is called modern fertility. Uh, in the UK, there's a company whose name I'm blanking on that does the same thing. They send you a kit to your house. Okay. Um, you can um, do the same thing, a, a cheek swab even, and you send it off. Just like how people are doing 23andMe yeah. and um, the other Ancestry DNA stuff. They're now tests to do the AMH to look at your thyroid, which is a really important hormone for our overall everyday health and our egg health, and vitamin D. They look at that stuff. So that's one you can do. And then an ultrasound, you can either schedule through a fertility clinic or most of your OBGYN clinics can do it as well, which is a day two ultrasound. And it's just to assess your ovaries and your um, uterus. So technically, when I went to my OBGYN and I had my ultrasound done to see if I had any, you know, fibroids, could they have... Are you telling me that they actually have in their hands that information in terms of, I don't know, how many, my egg, egg count range based on that scan? Or would I have had to ask for something different? Uh, no, they could have identified it. The question is whether they chose to. Oh, um, man. So interesting. And, yeah. No, so to be honest, right, because I'm speaking as an OBGYN myself, but now I'm a subspecialty trained OBGYN. Most OBGYNs, um, unless they've had personal experience with this, this is not their primary focus when you come to see them. Their primary focus is to make sure you don't have any infections, make sure you don't have a um, when you're there for your annual. Now, some of them feel comfortable enough with the specialty of infertility. They draw these Oh, Dr. Duke, you. you are cutting in and out a little bit. I'm just going to... Okay. Is it better now? Uh, yeah, let's keep going. Okay. So some of your OBGYNs feel comfortable enough that they will draw these tests as part of the workup. I would tell you that based on some of our small studies so far of OBGYNs, what we're seeing is it tends to be if your doctor is female, if she's within that same age group, and probably if she's undergone the same thing herself, it's now more present in her mind to check on that for you. Um, but otherwise, you can usually see a fertility specialist. You don't need a referral from your OB-GYN. So like to see me, I see patients via telemedicine. Um, you don't need a referral to mm. see me. You can request one. Um, and many clinics are like that. You can request to see them. Um, if you have insurance, they will check with your insurance. Um, most insurances will cover a visit with a fertility doctor. They may not cover fertility treatments, but they'll cover that visit where you just go in to ask questions, get blood work, and get an ultrasound. Huh. Great tip there. Great, great tip there. I'm so glad that you're here with me in the lounge because I feel like I'm learning a lot. So that only, that must tell me, well, that's telling me that there are people out there that are absolutely taking notes and, and learning for themselves too. So again, thank you for this knowledge you're dropping. All right, so we have a question from, this is the second to the last um, caller question that we have for you today, and it's in relation to low egg count. So I'm going to play this one for you. Hi, Dr. Duke. I'm a 38-year-old black British female. When I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with a condition called prolactinoma and had a benign tumor, which was manageable. And my prolactin levels have been consistently high since. Um, I've been on medication and taken myself off and on of it. Um, 
this year, January, I'd just come back from a sabbatical and my prolactin was amazingly really well. I haven't been tested since January due to COVID-19, so I was still a bit concerned that my levels probably have gone up because it's due to stress. Um, but also last year, I went to get my fertility checked and apparently my fertility count's very low and I was advised to um, get pregnant with the next year and to ensure that my eggs were um, healthy, the remaining eggs that I do have stay healthy. So I just really want to know what I need to do to make sure those eggs are staying healthy as I do plan to have children um, within the next year or two. Um, but yes, yeah, I wanted to know what I can do whilst I'm, yeah, getting on with life, I guess. Thank you. So, Doctor, do you, do, would you say, um, you know, because I know that we've already spoken a little bit about how to make sure that we're doing what we can from a nutritional perspective to ensure that we're healthy and we're giving our eggs um, and our reproductive system the best um, foundation to, you know, conceive. Is there anything more that perhaps you haven't mentioned um, to add to this specific question with regards to she already knows that she's got a low egg count, um, you know, in terms of boosting or fast tracking. And I hate using the word fast track because you can't really, you know, fast track natural, natural, naturality. Needs to freeze her egg. So the truth is, like we talked about, the egg number will only continue to decline. And um, while some people's decline is slow, for others, it goes really fast, such that by 40, they're all out of their eggs. Mm. And so I would say, in the very least, she should have a repeat check of the egg number test within six months of the last one okay. to get a sense of how quickly is her number falling. Because if she happens to be in that group of women whose egg numbers are dropping quickly, she doesn't really have the luxury of the one or two years that mm -hmm. she's hoping for. Mm -hmm. She may want to use her eggs now to truly give herself that insurance policy if she doesn't have a partner that she can try with naturally today. Perfect. Okay, I hear that. Um, listen, quick sidestep. Yeah. Periods heavy, painful periods that may or may not be related to, to, you know, fibroids, which we discussed, you know, some time ago now, what would you, are there any natural alternatives that us women out there who are suffering from heavy periods should be gravitating towards during the time of the month, perhaps, or perhaps during our day to day to make them less painful? Well, the very dietary changes that I cite. The same ones. Okay. Because the pain is usually from an inflammatory process, it's probably related to either endometriosis or adenomyosis, both of which can happen even if you have fibroids. And um, it's a very inflammatory process that causes a lot of discomfort and scarring over time for, for patients. So it's actually important to get it diagnosed mm. because if you have endometriosis in particular, it can really eat away at your eggs very quickly quickly, it's actually the number one reason for women having lower egg number than their peers. Um, and so it's important to get that figured out. But also, yeah, the things we talked about, especially the anti-inflammatory foods, the things that are potentially high in hormones, because the pain is usually, again, due to estrogen-like activity. Now, this might be a stupid question, okay, so forgive me for it. But is, would you class spicy food as inflammatory? Um, it depends. So there are some spices that people actually say um, are 
anti-inflammatory. So they cut back on inflammation. Cayenne is one. Okay. But you know what's interesting is certain spices, different people have different sensitivities to yeah. different spices. Mm-hmm. You do well with cayenne, but someone else may actually have an inflammatory slash pseudo allergic response to cayenne that mm-hmm. only exacerbates their inflammatory profile. Um, same thing for paprika, we've discovered in some patients. So what I would say is, you know, watch what you're doing. So some people have pelvic pain, but they also have a certain thing called interstitial cystitis or IC. And What's we that? know for sure that It's basically um, this tenderness that happens within your bladder that causes painful bladder syndrome. It is also associated with endometriosis or pelvic pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Some women have bleeding around the time of their cycle coming from their bladder. It's so bad. And in those women, we know for sure that food triggers, we help them figure out what the trigger is. And for many of them, It's either something like caffeine, spicy food, tomato sauce, dairy. Um, You help them figure out what their trigger is. They cut it out of their diet and they actually see appreciable difference in their pain profile. Fascinating. Oh, okay. Good to know. All right, listen, this is our last question from our um, listeners. Okay. Um, More around the topic on irregular periods. Love to get your insight on this one. Hi, Dr. Duke. I'm not trying to have any more babies at the moment, but my menstrual cycle is very irregular, sometimes non-existent for several months at a time. My question is, do I have to have a cycle for general health, or should I just be happy not to have to deal with Aunt Flo? <laughs> Aunt Flo there. <laughs> oh, well, it feels great if you're not trying to get pregnant for some women not to have a period. For others, not having a period is actually stressful because you're like, could I be pregnant? Um, And so that aside, though, the big worry about not having a regular period in a patient like this is that she may have something called polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. And in PCOS, what's happening is the ovaries are active. They're making estrogen. There we go again. Estrogen comes up again but they're not ovulating regularly. And so they're not making progesterone, which is the ovulation hormone. Mm-hmm. So their body keeps making estrogen, which just keeps feeding the uterus, feeding the lining. And over time, if she's not having a period, it can actually cause changes to those cells that can either become precancerous or cancerous. So we actually say that you need to either be on a low dose of progesterone to keep the periods from coming, but also keep the lining from building up. You want it to stay thin. Or consider something like an interim device, like a marina, to keep things thin, keep you from getting pregnant, but also not have a period. So you get the best of all worlds. What was the um, name of that? What was the name of that device? You did come out. Yeah, you um, came in and out. Uh, marina. Marina. R-E-N-A. It's an intrauterine device or an IUD. And so that's one of the ones we recommend. But we may also recommend low-dose progesterone. And it's not a progesterone that you need to be on every day. But maybe once every 60 days, your doctor will prescribe you 10 tablets that you take Mm -hmm. so it can induce a period. 
And then once you have that period, you go again for 60 days and then you take those 10 tablets again. But that way you keep the lining from building up what we call unexposed estrogen buildup because that's when precancers or uterine cancer can start. You have dropped a million gems, probably a million and one. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Duke, for your insights, um, so much knowledge. And quite honestly, I'm excited to keep this conversation going. I think this needs to be something that becomes the norm, you know, in our community it should be okay and encouraged to talk about our fertility. Um, but on to something that, you know, a little bit of fun here, really. I, I want to know about your beauty essentials. If you had to pick one skincare product, one makeup product, and one hair care product that are your top beauty essentials, what would they be? Well, there's one serum that I like to use. It's called Good Genes. It's a lactic acid serum. And I use it because it really gives that glow on the skin and it helps to renew and revitalize the skin. So I like that. Okay. Um, my one beauty such. I mean, I have tons, but I would say that one, one in a <laughs> to her facials. Okay. Um, and then for makeup, I always, always wear eyeshadow and you a little do. blush. I'm so different. I'm so the opposite. I always like skip the eyeshadow step. <laughs> no, I like eyeshadow and I've been wearing eyeshadow since I was a teenager. I never wear foundation because I don't like how it makes me look or feel. Mm -hmm. So um, just do blush and eyeshadow. Okay. And what's your third? Your favorite hair product. Hair product. Oh my goodness. Of late, my favorite hair <laughs> in the era of the pandemic, my favorite hair product is this. It almost looks <laughs> it almost looks like an eyeliner, but it's a wand for covering grays. I, I it's know what you're talking about. I know. <laughs> but um, yes, the last three months, it's been the thing that's in my handbag at all times. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because today my hairstylist literally texted me and I haven't talked to him since early March. And he said, now I'm taking appointments for colors and cuts. And I was like, yes! But... <laughs> Everyone is waiting for that moment to go and see their, their hairstylist. You know, I think we all took our hairstylist for granted. We did. We did. I mean, you know, I, I, I would say the one thing that I've probably come out of this pandemic with is a greater, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Greater ability to handle my hair. Cause I have natural hair. So I usually wash okay. and blow dry it myself and his Historically, I didn't do my own blow dries. I would just go to him and he would do it and I'd maintain it. And so now I've learned to do that versus doing my own natural styles more okay. because I couldn't even go to the braiding salon. They were closed too. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn for I, myself. I think we've all learned so much during this COVID time. It's really challenged us to, to you know, learn some new yeah. skills. <laughs> I have to do better. Is there anything that you want to share about your business? Like, this is the moment to, to tell our listeners about um, your business. Like, give yourself a plug here. So, well, you know, my clinic is Nevada Fertility Institute, and we're in Las Vegas, Nevada, but we do see patients from all around the world um, here in Las Vegas. And we're a full-service clinic. Um, I am on social media, so you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, at Dr. Cindy M. Duke. 
D-R-C-I-N-D-Y-M-D-U. I also have a podcast. It's called Girl Powered Success and Survival International. And really, I spend the time on my podcast talking to women from around the world and really trying to figure out what it is that motivated them to follow their different career paths. So it's really meant to just highlight career paths. Um, but it's a fun podcast, the Gripsy podcast as well. I'm going to go check it out. I'm, and we'll also tag your social media handles, website and everything in the show notes. So our listeners that want to learn, learn a little bit more about you can do so very easily. And I a lot. So on my website, drcindyduke.com, I have lots of blogs about all these things that we're talking about today. I also have a book coming out, which is called Infertility in the Time of COVID-19. I forgot to plug that. Oh, um, <laughs> Infertility <laughs> in the Time of COVID-19. Yes, it's an ebook, and it should be released next week. Oh, well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, great. I'll have to make sure that our followers um, know where to get that information show. So I'll definitely share the, the link to your website so that they can stay tuned Amazing. Congratulations. You're doing so much right now. Oh, thank you. It's been a bit, I, I, it helped me pass the time during the pandemic. I, I bet. Okay, look, this is the last part of this podcast. This is the part that um, supposedly is the, is the fun part, whatever that means, because I feel like our conversations actually <laughs> are the most fun piece, um, what, fun part of the podcast. But um, this is what we call the lightning round. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you a series of about eight to 10 questions. Um, and you just pick one of the two options that I'm going to give you. Don't think too much about it. It's just a little bit of fun. Ready? Ready. Spicy or mild? Spicy. Curry chicken or jerk chicken? Ooh. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a combination. You have, you have to pick one, Dr. Duke. Mm-mm. Go with jerk chicken. Okay. A real book or a Kindle? Real book. I don't have a Kindle. <laughs> Fair enough. Trinidad Carnival or Brazil Carnival? Oh, Trinidad Carnival. Trinidad Carnival. Okay. Rum or wine? Wine. Wine. Okay. You've overslept. You have five minutes to do hair or makeup. Which one is it? Here. Hair. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Uh, made up mama or naturalista? Naturalista most days. Okay. Stay at home or lift the ban? Stay at home. Stay at home. Okay. And lastly, say it or don't say it? I believe in saying it. I mean, being tactful about it, but saying it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Duke. You have been awesome. I could not have asked for a better guest to speak uh, to all of us about this specific subject of fertility, fibroids, and the issues that us women of color around the world uh, are impacted with on a daily basis. So I just want to say it's been a pleasure having you in the lounge. I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, same here. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much.